0: If you could all stand with me as we read God's word in preparation for the sermon. The reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, Repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and seek good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for the sermon. Lord God, thank you so much that you have given us um, such a wonderful man of God as Kyle. Anoint his lips, Lord. Speak through him that our hearts may receive your word and grow and bear fruit. In Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So good to be here with you all this morning. God bless you. I hope that you enjoyed the weekend and are enjoying your weekend. We um, just began um, on Thursday. Um, Our women's um, Bible study began on Thursday, correct? Is that true? Oh, two Thursdays ago. Yeah, so um, I've, I've been hearing good things about that. So if that's something that you can participate in, it meets on Thursday mornings. And um, Pat Marin um, is the one that um, organizes that. And um, there are other people that help her um, lead that, and it's a lot of fun. you know. So I hope that you all can consider that as one option for you and just kind of gathering together and getting to know each other more. But so good to be here with you this morning to continue... Our look at this, uh, this letter in the New Testament that Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes uh, to a suffering church. We approach this with um, a sense of awe, knowing that um, when we read scripture, we don't read just a piece of literature. We don't read just a piece of history. Um, we don't even just read good advice about life. We read the very words of God. God has spoken to us. God has revealed himself to us in creation and also in his word. Um, we believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God for all is inspired of God and profitable for rebuke, correcting, and for training in righteousness. So God speaks. We're not alone. Um, he speaks to us, and we know that the Bible is indeed God's Word. Our proof for that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is alive, it authenticates what he said, and he said that what we have in our laps is the Word of God. So we're so excited this morning that we're not on our own. We're not on a spinning blue ball. Um, by ourselves um, we 're not just going to occupy some space and a ground when we're lives are, when our lives are over, but there is a God and He created you with a purpose and you 're here for a reason, and he loves you and he bids you to call he bids you to come to him to empty your hands and come to him amen that 's why we're here we're not, we're not here to just have a good time, um, although we have a good time um, we 're not here to just make friends, although we do make friends we 're here to meet with God um, the Bible calls his gathered church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Collectively, believers, when they gather together, they make up the visible representation of the creator and king of all things. That's what we do this morning as God's people. Isn't that incredible? We are the body of Christ, the hands and the feet of the creator king. Wonderful. Wonderful news. We're not here to just hear a, a sermon. We're not here to just be encouraged even by the Word of God. Those things are included. We are here collectively as the living presence of God Almighty. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? Oh, you can't do that over a, over a screen. Come to church. Gather with God's people when you can, whether it be in a small group or here or wherever. Praise God this morning. The Master Teacher, Jesus Christ. He often had this way of kind of speaking in enigmas or riddles that sometimes are curious to the listener. He said in the Gospels, you've probably heard this, but he said, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Oh, isn't that strange? that Jesus would say something. This is audacious. He's telling us to hate our lives. And some of you are saying, well, I'm there already. I'm with you. I got you, Jesus. (laughs) Okay? If that is perhaps how you feel and is your attitude, might I suggest to you that you actually love your life? Now, that's kind of ironic that's a head twist right if you hate your life it's probably because you love this world and you've missed something in this world that you wanted so now you hate your life right isn't that true anyone that who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life now you read this first clause, and it's like Jesus is saying that somehow if, you're, if you enjoy your life, you're doing something wrong. It kind of feels like he's saying that, doesn't it? Because he says you're going to lose your life if you love it. What's going on here? And he seems to motivate motivate us to disdain our lives. This is where it gets even more uh, more confusing. He wants us to almost disdain our lives so that we we can keep the lives, preserve the lives. Well, which is it, Jesus? Why are you trying to get us, to preserve, to keep the life that you're telling us to disdain. It's happening here. It's as if he's saying that life is important, more important than any of us realize. So to preserve it, there's something about it that kills us, that takes it from us, that we need to identify whatever that life killer thing is and disdain that, hate that, because that's what takes your life away from you. You see what he's saying? Now, maybe we can add to the confusion here, because Peter tells us in our text, he quotes the book of Psalms, the Old Testament book of Psalms. It's a book of Psalms mostly written by King David. And he says, he quotes the book of Psalms, and he says, if you want to love your life, and who here doesn't want to love their life? To have a happy life. I think we're all after that, right? He says, if you want to love your life, Never make a pretty woman your wife. No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) That's not in the Bible. That's a very dumb song. Um, Okay. He says, if you want to love your life and see good days, then heed these instructions. And this is what Psalm says. It says, if Jesus is encouraging us not to pay too much mind to the life that we have now or how we might feel about it, but Peter is telling us how to live a rich, full, and happy life. So which is it? Is it Peter or Jesus? What's going on here? Now when I peruse all this and I think about these principles here, I come to a conclusion. I think they're saying the same thing. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus' point, I think, is he's saying is that if I love myself so much, if I love me so much, and I'm so intent on having a good life and a happy life, a life that I love, that I'm willing to hoard all my possessions that I'm willing to glut myself in pleasure, that I'm willing to seek material gain and prosperity, and all of these things as a means to maximize the possibility of a happy life, then I really don't love myself enough because the things that I'm after actually won't do what I think they'll do. So if you really love yourself enough, you'll put down those things and you'll follow Christ. If you really wanted a happy life, a, loving, a life that you would love to live, you would heed these words, that you're experiencing at best a weak or counterfeit happiness. The words of Jesus are instructing, uh, instructing the listener to empty themselves of a vain pursuit for the purpose of, a, because he wants us to have a rich and full life. So Peter quotes Psalm chapter 34 in our sermon text. If you have um, a Bible on your lap, you'll notice that sometimes, depending on the Bible that you have, you'll notice when they're quoting the Old Testament because there'll be like an indentation in the text or it will be in italics, and it kind of gives you a clue as to the fact that they're quoting something. But Peter here is quoting First Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Psalm chapter 34. And this psalm is saying the same thing. If you really want to love life, if you really want a life filled with joy and hope and purpose and the like, he doesn't say, oh, how selfish of you. No. He actually gives you the tools to accomplish this. He prescribes a radical antidote to the soul sickness that we all suffer with all too frequency. Amen? The life-losing plague that haunts us all. The Bible's defined outlook on the Christian life is that it should be loved and enjoyed. Isn't that just great news? You just say that right there and let's meditate on that again. The Bible's defined outlook on the Christian life is that it should be loved and enjoyed. Amen? I didn't say that the Bible's defined outlook on the Christian life is that he's going to give you lots of things, lots of money, lots of health, I didn't say those things. I didn't say he's going to give you marriage or children, okay? But the Bible's defined outlook on the Christian life is that it should be loved and enjoyed. And that brings my, what sometimes is a very weary and very sad soul hope. Because I know that something's off. That God hasn't doomed me or prescribed me to a life of misery and anxiety and fear. No. He's given me something else. In our text, loving life is the product of something that we are not used to. It is the outcome of what I can identify as four things in our text. To love life, there must be, I can see, four things. A gospel calling, a gospel unity, a gospel purging, and a gospel transformation. A calling, a unity, a purging, and a transformation. So let's put, a, put on our thinking caps together. You got them? They're in your pockets. Let's put them on and turn on the on switch, okay? Let's look at this. If I were to pan the room tonight or this morning and ask how many people, um, what do you think would make for a life that you'd love? Just write some things down on a piece of paper for me. Start thinking about it. I'm sure I'd get a wide variety of answers, right? Now, some of us are Christians, so we're trained to know what to say, right? But let's just be honest, about how, what our real answers are from time to time. What keeps us up at night, those types of things. We would get a wide variety of answers. Many of, of us Christians, I think, are even driv- driven by similar goals as the rest of humanity. Now, some um, popular prescriptions out there, I don't know if you've ever um, um, heard of vet president, Vice President Joe Biden. Of course you have. You might disagree with his politics, but the man is familiar with suffering and loss. And he he is quoted um, as as quoting the great philosophers who said that the grand essential to happiness in this life are something to do. Have, how many people have, have heard this before? Something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. If you kind of arrange those things in your life, you're going to end up living a life that you'll enjoy. Okay, something to do, something to love, something to hope for. Many different people have. Been quoted as saying this. It's hard to know who actually said it. But like Immanuel Kant, different philosophers have said these things. Another one, I like this. This is a little bit more whimsical because it comes from um, the ideas that you get from Alice in Wonderland. Actually, the best gift you could have given her was a lifetime of adventure. Right? And, and some of us in, in, in this room this morning hear that and are like, yes, that's what I want adventure. I want adventure. I'm bored. I don't want to be bored. I want to have adventure, and that could include a lot of things like love, or sex, or you know, war, even you know, fighting for a just cause, something like this. the The Christian worldview in the Bible, however, describes really two different life drivers. There are there are only two places that you're going to go to fulfill your soul, according to Scripture, to make your heart full to enjoy your life, to live a happy life. John distinguishes them in the New Testament in his letters. He calls them the love of the world or the love of God. Those are the two places that you will go to satisfy your soul. The world or God. The love of the world or the love of God. John says Everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So John says that every single person you'll ever meet is on one of those paths to fulfill their soul, their weary soul, and to accomplish a, a life that they love. They'll either go after the world or they'll go after God. And the Bible says that these are conflicting paradigms too, by the way. You can't co-bingle them. You don't do both at the same time. You say, well, I love the world and God. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's like putting dirt in Kool-Aid. It doesn't make you can't have both. You'll choose one or the other. What the Bible teaches all of us is that the only life that you will really love, that will really satisfy, is the life that first loves God. Now, Scripture is not saying that it's wrong to love your wife. That's not the world. That's not what the Bible's saying. Okay? These are two different gods, two different places, two different sources of your own personal identity. Okay? So what the Bible teaches all of us is that the only life that will really satisfy us is the life that first loves God. And that's what I'm describing first as a gospel calling, number one. A life that has a gospel calling. Our text reads this. Repay evil with blessing because this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. The gospel, according to Peter, says that humanity is separate from God because of sin. This is in chapter 1. That we were created to have a love relationship with our God, but because of sin we were cut off from God. The Bible calls this death. And the Bible calls death hell. We will experience death and hell in this life and the next unless our relationship with God is mended. It's reconciled. And that is what the Gospel says. That the separation, that, that we are outside of God's love, care, and blessing is remedied by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for us in our place. He sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty that we deserve through his shed blood at the cross and then he calls us back to himself. There is a word in scripture called calling that we saw even in our text. That he called you. The voice of God calls out to the ears of guilty sinners who have never heard his lovely voice so that he might be reconciled to them. So that he might rescue them. So that he might save them. So step number one to living a life that you'll love is to hear the voice of God in his forgiveness and grace. There it is. To hear his voice that makes your heart leap because you recognize that you should be consumed by his presence and not preserved in his presence. Like the burning bush. Shouldn't fire burn bushes, right? Well, shouldn't the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, who is always good, who is always righteous, who is all holy all the time, who is completely just, shouldn't his presence consume sinners? Shouldn't it? Indeed, it should. But instead, Christ was consumed. A transfer was made. My sin was put on him so that the call of God could go out to me and rescue me and forgive me and put me in the life that I was supposed to live in right relationship with my good God who loves me. That's a full life. That's where it begins. Because of this, our ears hear God's calling. Friends, to be a Christian means that God has approached you and called you. And this approach wasn't to destroy you, but to save you. Isn't that good news? You know, that's what the word gospel means. It just means good news. And friends, if God has worked to redeem you, this same God who is always right, only right, only good, only perfect, and only love, wouldn't you just presume that the redemptive calling that you've received that have fallen on your ears must mean that God has something good in store for you in that calling? At the moment we hear the sweet sound of his forgiving voice, we can have the assurance That everything in this life is directed in our lives by his kind will. It's moving us to his rest and his presence and his love. I want to give you uh, an example of someone who understood this in the Bible. In Luke chapter 1, we know her as Mother Mary. Right? Mother Mary. Now Mary gets a bad name. In evangelical churches, because some denominations pray to her, and they they consider her a mediator between God, between us and God, and we reject that. But at the same time, I think what happens is that Mary has gotten a lot of poo poo. And if you look at Mary, I don't know of many other examples. You guys like that word? Oh, I'll try to fill it in, fit it in again later. Um, <laughs> I like immature people cuz I hear them giggling with me when I say things like that. But um <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, Mary. That's right, Mary. I when I scan the Bible and I look for examples of exemplary people, man, Mary's got to be in the top 3. She's got to be in the top 3. I I don't know of many other characters in scripture who have so so much obedience and faith recorded on their side? Now, consider the angel approaching her in Luke chapter one. The angel said to her. So an angel shows up, and Mary's afraid because she's never seen an angel before. So she's afraid. She doesn't know what it is. So she says. So the angel says, "Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God." So Mary is now hearing a message from God, a calling. The voice of God is calling her. And here's what she hears. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you, will call, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And this is her response. She says, I am the Lord's servant, May your word to me be fulfilled. Now that response is incredibly profound. Because most of the time, whether we realize this or not, when we look at the the characters of scripture, and if we scan even our own lives, we do not respond to God's call like that. We say, why me? Or I don't like that. Or can you call somebody else to do that? I don't like this at all. But if you recall, what happens first Mary, what was the first calling? You have found favor with God, Mary. Your sins are forgiven, they're washed away. You deserve condemnation. You deserve death and hell, but instead, you have found favor with God. That means grace, that God is being gracious to you, Mary. You see, Mary was a sinner, but she was approached with this this message of the grace of God that she is not condemned that she won't be consumed by the presence of God. And then following that, that salvation call, we can call it, comes a specific call in a way to serve Jesus Christ with her life. And the way that she served Jesus Christ with her life was to bear him in her body, to raise him as his mother. So she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary says, yes, Lord. And she doesn't say, yes, Lord. Like when moms and dads say, go clean your room. Okay. Right, we, we say yes, but we really don't want to. We're kind of mad that the question was even asked to begin with. That's not Mary's yes. That's not the yes she gives. And here's how we know that, because she starts to pray. She starts to sing a prayer. You guys know this prayer as the Magnificat. Oh, and what a magnificent prayer it is. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has regarded the lowliness of his maidservants, his handservants. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for he that is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Great things for me. And holy is his name. Mary, okay, put this into context. Mary is about to endure a very difficult, a very sad, and a very tragic life that nobody in this room would want to live. Nobody. It would look as if she committed sex outside of marriage while betrothed to her husband, which she could have been stoned for under the law, Joseph, her betrothed, almost leaves her over this. And if it weren't for a divine intervention, she would have lost her husband. They have to run, do you remember this? They have to run for their lives to Egypt because King Herod was seeking to kill Jesus. This was her life. Then, to make matters worse, her son becomes the object of scorn and hostility, she watches her 33-year-old firstborn child betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, whipped, spit on, stripped, tortured, and abandoned by those closest to her. Is this not working? Yeah, it was oh, okay, okay. okay here we go. Can you imagine this? That's what's happening. That's what she's being called to. Her only, her, excuse me, her firstborn child beaten. Imagine your first-born child. Imagine God saying, here's what I have in store for you, Mary. Here's what I have in store for your life. Your firstborn child will be the Savior. He's going to be made fun of. He's going to be mocked. They're going to strip him naked. They're going to beat him to death. They're going to scourge him with whips filled with glass and bone. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head with thorns two inches thick. They're going to stick railroad-sized spikes through his wrists and feet. They're going to laugh at him and mock him and then murder him. That's what they're going to do to him. And you're going to watch the whole thing. May your word be fulfilled. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he that is mighty has done great things for me. (sighs) You see, when the calling of God comes on your life, you will either rejoice because of the saving message of that call, or you will bemoan the sacrifice that you'll have to make. You see, And we can all kind of dip into both of those pools from time to time. Today I'm rejoicing and I'm glad because my sins are forgiven, but tomorrow I'm ticked that I have to endure such difficulty and trial. But she says, may a word be be to me. You know, Adam and Eve didn't respond like this. They crunched into that fruit like it was the last piece of fruit they had. Abraham didn't believe God. Nope. Sarah laughed at God when God came to her and called her. When God called Moses, you know what he did? He said, you know, you really should send someone else because I don't got what it takes. This isn't, this isn't right for me. Jo- what did Jonah do? <laughs> you know what Jonah did. He ran the opposite direction. You know, in the very same chapter where, Jesus, where, where Mary is singing to Jesus about how wonderful he's being to her, in the very same chapter prior, God calls Zachariah to raise John the Baptist and he doesn't believe him, and he's stricken dumb. This same chapter. How does this 14-year-old girl respond like this? She was probably 14. Did you know that? 14 or 15 years old. I'm 38, and I whine about, you know, that I don't have nicer shoes on my feet. My car isn't as new as I'd like it to be. How does this fifteen-year-old girl muster up this kind of courage? The only the only thing that I can under, the only way that I can explain this is that she believed the gospel. She believed she had faith in God's call, gracious calling on her life. That no matter what tragedies might come along with God's calling, that to be in God's calling is better than to be outside of it. That all of the the love of the world that she could muster up is not as satisfying as being in right relationship with her God and her creator and her maker. Do you believe that, friends? Do you believe that call? Because if you do, it will give you perspective when you lose stuff, and when it costs, and when it hurts. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean it's not going to cost. It doesn't mean that you won't have tears. Jesus himself had tears. But friends, you will have, you will have grief, yet not as those without hope. Because at the right hand of God, there is pleasure forevermore. Isn't there? Isn't that true? That's how she did it. She believed. Simple faith. It's knowing in your gut that if God calls you, if he shows up and he's merciful, only good is in store. That's it. That the the bumps in the road are just bumps. The tragedies of life will be overcome. Jesus beats them in the end. Amen? It's how we can see past the bath. It's, it's why the only life that we're ever really going to love is the life that is the object of God's calling us, right? If you know Christ, friend, God has called you to do the same thing Mary did. Did you know that? Well, you say, well, Mary had that perspective, right? Because, you know, she would have some trouble in life, but she was carrying Jesus, right? Like the Son of God. She had Jesus in her belly growing. She was raising God in the flesh. I mean, that's a lot cooler than what I got to do for Jesus. Right? Like I mean, I think that if that were my job, I probably would have received it with faith as well. Oh, would you? Do you know what the the principle in Scripture is? That if, if you if you say no to the little, why do you think that you'll say yes to the much? You won't. Because it's not about little or much. It's about, do you love God or do you love the world? That's what it's about. If you love God, you know what John the Baptist said? Here's another guy. He's in the top three as well. There's like seven people in the top three. But like John, the, John you know what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist is baptizing thousands of people. Jesus shows up. He baptizes Jesus, right? And then all of a sudden, this is in John chapter 3 after the famous for God so loved the world passage, right? All of a sudden, now all the people that were following John the Baptist start following Jesus. And you know what his disciples say? What's with this? We had all these people. We had this grand following. What's going on? And you know what John said? You know what his reply was? It's only for me to receive what heaven gives me. He must increase, I must decrease. It's only for me to receive what heaven gives me. Oh, isn't that liberating? Isn't that powerful? Friend, have you received what heaven has given you? Or do you hate your life? It's an important question. Because we judge, we look, we compare. We look at other people who have more kids or more money. Or their church, you know, like as a pastor, I'm tempted to this too. Their churches are bigger, whatever. But all these different things. Or do we say, it is only for me to receive what heaven has given you something. Heaven has not rejected you. Who cares if the pile is this high or this high? You see what the point is? You get Jesus. He's the pile. He's the big pile of money that you wanted. He's the many children. He's the cars. He's the fame. He's the fortune. He's all of that. You see, when heaven calls, whether it's a little or a lot, it doesn't matter, because that's the world stuff. We get Jesus, and we get all the same Jesus. Isn't that great? So, so when God calls us, he calls us to do the same thing that Mary... What did God call Mary to do? He called Mary to carry around Jesus. Right? To give birth to him. To, demo, to, to reveal him to the world. Right? Is your job any different, Christian friend? Oh, you might be a plumber, or you might be an electrician, or a lawyer, or just a stay-at-home mom. But isn't it your job to make the glory of Christ known to the world? It's the same as Mary's. And you're going to get a hard time for it, just like she got. You get the same job as Mary. The same one. Oh, my soul doth magnify the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he hath regarded the lowliness of his servant he that is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name that's you you're mary i'm mary the same thing he did for her he does for you he if you're a christian you have found favor with christ and you are called to give birth to christ in this world that we live in that's our call And that calling comes with sacrifice. Maybe it's a job you don't like. It's a marriage that you thought would be different. Maybe it's just the ordinariness of your existence. But oh friend, you carry around Jesus in all of that. You might think it's a burden. You might think it's a sacrifice. But it's your way to demonstrate Christ in a very broken world. That's your calling from heaven. God has called you from heaven. And the same is said as you, as said as Mary, for he has regarded the lowliness of his his servant. For behold, all people will call me blessed and you blessed if you are in Christ. For in Ephesians chapter 1, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you know what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes on. He says, You are his workmanship, workmanship, masterpiece poem you are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works that's who you are you are the mona lisa hanging on the wall of heaven you are that's not little that's not pathetic that's amazing that's who you are in Christ. You say, well, my life is this and that, and I lost this. And, oh, friends, I know that at times life comes with injustice and grief, and we should grieve. But do you know what you have in Christ? Do you know the glory that you have in Christ? Do you know what's in store for you? The calling from heaven that God has called out to you, his masterpiece. Oh, isn't that incredible? That's your calling from heaven. Friends, if you love the world, your spirit is crushed under this because you will only see the loss. But if you love God, your soul will magnify the Lord and your spirit will rejoice in God your Savior. Well, how do you love God better? Well, you just got to be with him, be around him. And, and actually, we're going to get into more of this in a second. How do you live a life that you're really going to love? Well, you, first, you need that gospel calling. Number two, you need gospel unity. Gospel unity, I should say, in community our text reads this finally all of you be like-minded finally all of you be like-minded now we have a lot of community type language here did you know that you didn't create yourself how many people knew that in this room yeah you guys are smart i knew actually only five people raised their hand the rest of you think you're god that yourself no I, i think you just don't like raising your hands i think we all know the reality of the fact that we did not create ourselves We didn't cause our own existence. And I think we're probably smart enough to know that we don't keep ourselves existing That we're relying on something outside of us for us to be, to exist. Isn't that true? If that's true, then you are a dependent being. You are not independent. You say, I'm an American, I'm independent. You're not independent. You need something or you would not be here. To be truly independent is, a, is something that God alone possesses. He is life. He sustains his own life. He is existence. He is the only truly independent being. He created us to be dependent on him. So that means something very simple. Let's just kind of put our think, those thinking caps on again. You can't be alone. A life that you will love will not be one that is by itself. At the very least, you need relationship with God. active and powerful relationship with God. You are dependent. Now now what we have here is all this one another language. If you needed something to cause your existence and you need, it, and you need something to keep you existent, then you are not OK on your own. You're not OK in isolation. You are not okay on your own. You are not okay in isolation. I know it's very easy to be around people and to be not around them at the same time. You say, I'm not alone. I'm here with you right now. You can be around people and not around them at the same time, and I think we all know this. The life that you'll love requires community, but not just any community, it needs community that has the gospel as a first principle. Let me explain to you what I mean. You need community that has a go- has the gospel as a first principle, a gospel community. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says be like-minded here in this text. Okay, we need to think the same about something. Well, what do we have to believe the same thing about? You know, the patriots? You know, sports team we like. How about, you know, there are a lot of like-minded, you know, um, uh, sports fans. Well, how about politics? You know, we, ha- we need to be like-minded about politics. What, what, what is it exactly that we need to be like-minded about? It's presumed <clears throat> that they are all gathering together. Peter's talking to a church. It's pre- presumed that all of these people are gathering together because he's telling this group that they're to have the same mind. They, they have to believe something in particular to have th- this in common. And friends, that one thing is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not some social reform. It's not some common interest. It's a community who agrees that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and sets their hope on his return. So they might have different politics. They might have different cultures or tastes in food. D- different you know like uh, socioeconomic statuses and all that's fine, but they cannot have different gospels. So as a church, as a local church, we can have a lot of differences about us, different colors of skin, different amounts of money that we make, different views on politics. We can vote for different presidents, that's okay, right? Like all of these differences can characterize us, but the gospel cannot be a difference. So when the church gathers together, it's important for us to gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ. To gather around the good news of Jesus. It's a community who agrees on the gospel of Christ and sets their hope on him. Do you know we, we do membership at our church? And if you pursue membership at Refuge Church, you're going you're to receive some materials that explains why we do this. One of the things that you're going to read, one of the first things that you're going to read I, on page one, I think it is, is is that we believe that the local church is not just a gathering of people, but a gathering of redeemed people. Now, anyone's welcome here. Anyone can come and hear the Word of God being preached, and they can be around us. But the local church, God's church, is a gathering of redeemed people, His people, that have been saved by grace through their faith, that they've exercised in Jesus Christ. So when we gather in this church, or anyone gathers in any other church, We gather as members of the church united under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. And that, by the way, comes from passages like this. We're instructed as a gathering to have the same mind. Do you agree with the gospel? So if you become a member at at our church, it's very simple. We don't complicate it, but we want to know that. What say you of the gospel? What do you believe? Who saves you? Right? That's what we're asking. And if, and if you say it's Jesus Christ, then that means you're a member of his universal church, and by implication, you are a member of this church. Does that make sense? Okay. So Peter instructs the local church to be like-minded, and the Bible instructs in other places that the unity of mind centers around the gospel, like in Galatians 1 and many other places. But if the gospel instructs our belief system... It also instructs our behavior, the way that we treat each other. We can call this a community rule. Our gospel unity is is a unity around the first principle of the gospel, but it's a unity around what the gospel should be producing in our treatment of each other. And this is good news. We're told, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insults. On the contrary... Repay evil with blessing. Oh, isn't that, isn't this good news already? We're being told that when you enter into the life of the church, you're going to be treated with evil intentions. Because we're still sinners. And what we're instructed to do as a local church is to not repay that with more evil, but to repay it with forgiveness and kindness. To not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. To repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. In the gospel, Jesus was sympathetic to us, wasn't he? The way that Jesus Christ relates with his church is the same way we're to relate to each other. He relates to his church with sympathy. In the gospel, Christ was compassionate to us. In the gospel, he humiliated himself for us. Isn't that true? He didn't repay evil for evil, but evil with blessing. Isn't that true? So he instructs the church to do the same to each other. The local church gathered is called to treat each other with the same favor that Christ has treated us. And that's very interesting to me because that means... That requires, as a caveat to the Christian life, if I believe in Jesus, that I am not just a spectator. I am called to have sympathy with you all. What is Symp- sympathy is a very simple word. It means to lessen a heavy load for someone else or to enjoy the less load. Re- scripture says it like this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's how we sympathize with each other. And friends, I can't do that if I don't know your name. And I don't know where you live. And I don't know if you're going through a divorce. Isn't that true? Scripture tells the local church to have sympathy with each other. Oh, that means so much more than just, just us showing up, doesn't it? And hearing a good sermon or a mediocre one. <laughs> you judge what this one is. Um, it's, it's so much more than that. It's life together. It's not busy bodies. It's not that. I know that. But it's knowing each other. Loving each other. Caring for each other. Supplying your needs when I know you have one. That's what praying for each other. We have a, a, a very simple little picture directory. And I insist that there are pictures in it. Because... I want to be able to know who comes here and to pray for you all. I don't want to forget you. It's very easy to forget. And I've encouraged all of us to, to take those home and to do the same. To pray through them as often as you can. To know God's people, to know His church. To sympathize means that I'm getting messy in real life integration with God's people. It means that we're called to pastor each other. Isn't that what that means? To shepherd each other. It means that not just the shepherd knows when one out of the hundred is missing, you know too. That's not why you pay me. That's the local church in its full glory, when it's working at its best. You know when someone's missing and you call them. You don't tell me to call them. Or, or just assume I am. You're watching because you care. Right? We're told to love one another. How do, you, how do you say, how can we love each other without really knowing each other? We can't. We can't just say, well, I love everybody. Well, I, I get that. I, there's a certain respect we have for us humans, Right? But love is more than that in scripture it's active it's caring it's knowing it's involvement to, to love someone is to share in them with their life their tragedies their joys to help them when they're in financial trouble right to dig them out of snow in their maybe aging in their aging life you 're there with a shovel because you're young like that 's what it means to sympathize and to love to return evil with blessing. Oh, is, that's a hard one, right? To forgive each other when the other person has not forgiven us. Now, isn't it true that we live lives so isolated at times that it's not even possible for someone to be a jerk to us? <laughs> right? This sort of, like, if someone, if I'm returning blessing with evil, it means that I have relationships with people, That's the only way that I can be the object of someone's scorn and indifference. And that's why, by the way, I think oftentimes we do isolate ourselves. Because we know if I get in the fray, I'm going to get some crossfire. And I'm sick of that. I'm tired of that. You see, you go back to the beginning. What's the gospel calling? You're forgiven. And you're given Jesus Christ. So I can deal with the insults of other people, the failures of even God's church, with grace and compassion. I, I'm empowered to do this because of what Jesus has done for me. So the gospel not only incorporates us into the life of Jesus' gathered people, but it instructs our acts and our attitudes by, by being sympathetic, compassionate, humble, selfless, and redemptive. Whoever would love life will hear the gospel call jump into gospel community and number three, have a gospel purging. It says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceit and speech, deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good, they must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Oh, isn't this incredible? that the life that I will love as a Christian, is a holy one. It's not a rebellious one. It means that I am being purged of sin. The Kind of the old word for this is the mortification of sin. The death of it. The killing of it. It's moving out of the way anything that interferes with having a union with Jesus Christ. And a love relationship with him. Because I recognize that those tricks of Satan, his temptation towards me is actually presenting me with poison i think it'll give me life it won't give me life i know that as a christian now so i repent i turn from it i push it aside and i have i have relationship with my maker you know that god saves us by his grace but he also sanctifies us by his grace sanctify the word sanctify means that you're being made more like jesus more holy you look more like him right you're sanctified not, you're saved not just by grace, but you're sanctified by grace. That means that it requires a supernatural act of God's grace to make us holy, to make us like him. Romans chapter 6 makes this clear. For we know that our old self was crucified, mortified, killed with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That means if you are in Christ, you don't have to go on sinning. You're not a slave to it. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection have given you the power, everything that you need to overcome and to have victory. Good news, isn't that? You are not doomed to viewing pornography for the rest of your life because you're a boy or a man and it's just who I am. You're not doomed to jealousy or hate or anger or fear you see there's victory in christ if god has indeed saved you he has saved you to deliver you from the power of sin and we still have a choice to make we're not slaves to slaves to sin but we can still choose it and that's when it's corrupting influence and soul-crushing power comes back into our lives and destroys our joy we're instructed to turn from evil from deceit and to do good we're not to do this to satisfy God's justice for sin that's already been done at the cross of Christ, but rather that our souls and our spirit might love the spirit-filled life. Do you love the spirit-filled life, the life of obedience, where you recognize that sin is not better than Jesus? You've been tricked, you've been fooled, you've been hoodwinked, right? It's not better. Money's not better. Rebellion's not better. Being found in Christ at his right hand is the greatest joy. That's a life that you will love, and that's a life that will transform you. And that's our fourth point here, gospel transformation. The person that truly sees good days and loves life has been transformed by all this. Not because they lack suffering. The Bible even just said people are going to dish evil out to you. You're going to have to deal with that. That's suffering right there. The good life isn't prosperity. The good life is unity with God. That's the life that you love. Whoever would love life and see good days will be the object of God's care and affection. 4, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to his prayer. You know how all that translates to me? The eyes of the Lord are on you. It means that you are fully satisfied in your union with God. Go after that, friend. Get to your knees tonight and pursue him and these things. And let me close with a few more words. I know a man that bemoans his life. Do you know one? He longs for death. Do you know a person like this? He groans daily. His joy is short-lived, and it's interrupted by much despair. I know a person who seems relatively happy. You know, boat trips, good food, nice beer. These fishing things sort of satisfy him. But this person's like a child content, like C.S. Lewis said, with mud pies in the slumps because they've never been in a holiday at the sea. I know people like this. I'm all of this. I'm all these people, by the way, from time to time. I know a Christian man, unhappy. He thinks his life doesn't matter all that much. He worries about tomorrow. Amen? Friend, do you want to love life? I mean, really love life? You can love the world, or you can love God. And might I encourage you this morning to hear God's gospel calling to you, to be united in community under that gospel and under his community rule, to be purged of sin and to be transformed. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word, how it equips us and sharpens us and focuses us. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't, Jesus Christ just cry out to him right now, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I need you to save me. I've been running from my whole life. I've sinned against you in heaven. But God, in Christ at the cross, you poured out all your anger on Christ instead of me. All my sins are forgiven and you've put me, you've grafted me into yourself. You've called me out and reconciled with me. If that's you, friends, if your heart is changing in faith to God, you're saved. Your sins are gone. You're in Christ. And God, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, now that as we take communion, that we would remember all that you did for us so that we would be satisfied fully in you. In Jesus' name.